Hi, I'm Bob Witte with KPND in Sandpoint, Idaho. If I can be a fan of Skylight Books, LA's world-famous independent bookstore, from way up here in the Idaho Panhandle, then you can too from wherever you are. Visit the website, buy some books. You can even join their membership club and reap the benefits of supporting independent booksellers. Thanks. softer side meet me on the softer side softer side of your heart hi there and welcome to the skylight books author reading series you can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online you can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. What I heard like was a, a sound of hissing hissing and at first I thought uh, there's a gas leak let me let me go and check and but I thought, oh no there's n there's no gas here it's just all electric and then I thought uh, is it a snake there, I looked around no the snakes hibernate in the winter uh, wh what could it possibly be a leak of water no, I expected the house there was nothing nothing at all it took me a long while to figure out that what, what I was really listening to was the sound of my own body I had never been in a place of such perfect silence before. And I think it was at that moment that this particular journey, the journey of this book, began. And I knew that I was going to write something uh, from that moment on. Uh, and it's a book of living and moving through the, uh, the Southwest desert borderlands. Um, and it's a book of, it's, it's a book of, it's a book of memoir, but it's also, it tells the stories of many other people who had made the desert their home long before I had, and uh, in some cases, millennia, and, uh, and uh, uh, also a book about just how the desert uh, west has been transformed in the last generation in many respects, uh, demographically, politically, shifting from red to blue in several key states, Colorado, New Mexico, uh, Nevada, those three states, without those three states, Barack Obama would not be in the White House today. And without those three states, he cannot remain in the White House this time around. Um, and also, uh, uh, I would say that in the last 10, 15 years, with the boom and the bust cycle, uh, it, that it was seen nowhere more dramatically than on this particular landscape. Uh, the Western version of the one in the 99 is written big as the West itself. The extremes of wealth and poverty that we see in the West today are the most extreme in the country. It's the highest rates of foreclosure, the highest rates of unemployment, and at the same time, the greatest pockets of wealth in the country. And I was living right in between those spaces. So I'll read a, a short section from the book, and uh, we'd love to hear uh, comments, questions, desert stories from you all. Thank you again for being here. Um, this is a section. Um, when I arrive in northern New Mexico, 
which is where <coughs> my wife Angela ended up um, not dragging me because I went totally willingly. After I got my life back together in, in Joshua Tree, I, uh, I met Angela and um, she's an anthropologist and she was doing her dissertation research in northern New Mexico. And uh, she said, do you want to come with me? I said, yeah, absolutely. Northern New Mexico. I, I, immediately in my head, what I'm seeing are the landscapes. You know, I'm, I'm imagining Monument Valley. I'm imagining John Ford Vistas. I'm imagining uh, uh, George O'Keefe and R.C. Gorman and, uh, 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 you know, I'm not thinking of people on the land at that point. I'm thinking about the land, the landscape. And somehow, the fact that Angela is a medical anthropologist and was going to study heroin addiction in the Española Valley of northern New Mexico, that fact, that dark <laughs> fact, had receded to the back of my mind. So, here we are in the village of Velarde, population 800, in northern New Mexico, where Angela and I have just moved, and this is the first thing we hear from our neighbors. Get the fuck out of here! <laughs> Sunday afternoon. For the past hour, screaming and crying, fists pounding on a car hood, screen door slamming, and in the midst of the battle, the voice of a small boy talking to himself in a make-believe game. I said, I want you out of here. These are my neighbors. Rose Garcia and Jose Martinez. Garcia Martinez, I happen to be Martinez. Angela happens to be Garcia. Rose Garcia and Jose Martinez, a couple, both 23 years old. Their boy is perhaps five. She's light-skinned with long, thick black hair that she teases up in front, old-school Chicana style. She is somewhat pear-shaped, and what's striking about her body is the constant tension of it, every pose tense and blunt as a hammer. She almost always wears t-shirts and pants and flip-flops. Jose Martinez is short and wiry. He wears his baseball caps backwards, triple X size white t-shirts, and during the summer shorts and tennis shoes. I have never seen him without his head covered. What little hair peeks out from beneath the cap is cut very close, a crew cut. I rarely hear his voice, even though the courtyard in front of the house somewhere, somehow acts as a megaphone so that the southern end of the village can listen in on everything. It's almost always Rose's screams we hear. The fights occur a couple of times a week. I'm in the attic. We live in a hundred-year-old adobe. Uh, think just New Mexico pastoral. Tin roof, peaked adobe, adobe walls, right? hundred years old, American pastoral. And that's what all the houses look like up there, okay? I'm in the attic. I've made my writing space next to the window that looks out toward Jorendon's trailer. We would ultimately refer to Jorandon and his, and his family. Angela and I would talk about him as being the good neighbor. Toward Jorandon's trailer, the Juniper Hills beyond the highway, I've taken one of the old heavy doors stored in the garage and propped it up on sawhorses. The door probably hung in one of the original bedrooms downstairs. It's now my writing desk. You took my mota! She's accusing him of stealing her marijuana. I didn't take your mota, bitch! When I hear the screams, I edge up to the window at the other end of the attic where Angela writes and where I have a direct view of Rose and Jose's. I'm careful to remain in shadow, although I doubt my neighbors can see me given the angle and the distance. 
In any case, they're too deep in their own moment to look across the courtyard and up to the tiny window of their neighbor's attic. Sometimes Angela joins me. I kneel by the window and she stands. Or I sit in the rocking chair and she sits on the floor and rests her chin on an arm she supports on the windowsill. We stay for as long as the fight lasts, until he jumps into his car and drives off in a cloud of dust. Only rarely does she drive off. Upon his return, it'll start up again, muffled shouting from inside the house, a word, then a phrase, louder, closer to the front door. The door opens, now coming at us full volume. Get the fuck out of my life. This is her most oft-repeated line. She struts back inside again. The door slams. Now it's quiet in the courtyard and in the rest of the village. There was a late-season frost last night, but the sun has warmed the Española Valley. The local weather forecaster wrote that it was going to be a Chamber of Commerce day. Flies buzz lazily in the yellow and green and blue of spring. I can hear the rhythmic whir of a few cicadas, the first of the year, coming up from the riverside. The river is the Rio Grande. We're about 300 yards from it. The whoosh of cars and trucks up and down the highway. The distant thudding of locals taking target practice on the BLM land across the road. We are surrounded by millions of acres of public land that once belonged to the ancestors of my neighbors. And suddenly, Go to that little puta of yours. Her voice builds and crests in a shriek, which usually happens on the final word of a phrase like life, taking the vowel and bending it in several different directions before her breath runs out. She coughs. She coughs a lot. I hear it early in the morning, late at night. I hear it very clearly when she's sitting on the patio smoking a joint. It's quick and sharp, the throat clenching and tissue grating deep inside her chest. Every once in a great while, he responds, but he never shouts as loudly as she does. Look at you, you're psycho, eh? They are dealing. We have noticed the traffic. Perhaps a dozen cars a day drive through. The customers are men, all hispanos as uh, many Mexican-Americans refer to themselves in northern New Mexico. Young and old, mostly in work trucks. Some come early in the morning, apparently on their way to a trade job, plumbing, electrical. Others in the early evening, clearly after finishing work. Some in the middle of the day, some in the wee hours. It's Rose's house. The Garcias are as prominent in the area as the Rendones. One member of the clan owns the nightclub in the village, another the fruit stand that's never open at the intersection of the highway with the Leiden Road. The Garcias, I am told, are an old, connected family, so well connected that our landlady passed on to us the advice she was given by the cops when she suspected that Jose had stolen her lawnmower. We can't do anything to them, the cops said, but if you want to take action on your own, shoot him, drag him into your house, and make it look like self-defense against breaking and entering. Get the fuck out of here, you fuck. You and your pills. You think I'm fucked up? Look in the mirror. So Angela and I watch and listen to the screens on the attic windows. The journalist in me thinks, talk to them. Get close. This is what I tell my writing students all the time. Get close, get close. You know, documentary intimacy. But we already are. 
close. These are my neighbors. Rose is aware of our presence. During the first fright we witnessed, which occurred just a couple of weeks after our arrival, and which included Rose and another woman coming to blows in the patio, she screamed, I don't need this shit. I've got new neighbors. <laughs> Outsiders. I could imagine her calculating, perhaps even thinking of us as gringos. Angela drives a Subaru, and Ruben never leaves the house before 10 in the morning. Because class can trump race, and in New Mexico, race does not necessarily mean color. Plenty of Hispanos who claim Spanish lineage back it up with light skin and eyes. So over a period of months of adjusting to our arrival in Belarde, we come to an agreement, all of us. They won't get in our shit, and we won't get in theirs. Which means we must not feel compassion, or loathing, or fear. We must not feel anything for each other. But still, I go to the window in the attic. When Joe Rendon and I talk across the fence, the good neighbor, sometimes we'll discuss the latest eruption next door. He shakes his head. Joe's young, but he talks like he's old, a man of tradition. He's always reminding me that the Rendones own the land all the way from the highway to the river. There were orchards and pasture, Joe says, cows and sheep. And there was good snow every winter and good rain every summer. Oh, yeah, there were fights, of course, and lots of drinking, but not cocaine and not heroin. That's for sure. Now look at us. The sun dips below the black mesa, bringing Belarde's early twilight. No matter what time of year it is, the sun goes down an hour earlier here than it does anywhere else. Rose explodes one last time. I can't take it anymore. Now she shoots off in her red Chevy SUV. He stays behind with their son, putters around the yard. She returns in a few minutes, charging down the road in a dust cloud. She screams some more, goes back inside the house. At true dusk, when the last of the sunlight bleeds away from the eastern hills beyond the reach of the mesa's shadow and leaves them in a blue-gray pallor, I hear her screams again. I'm making dinner, sautéing Italian sausage and boiling water for pasta. I walk upstairs to the window where I've spent the better part of the afternoon. I can see the dome light inside Jose's small black sedan with the tinted windows. He's sitting inside, listening to music I can't hear. The little boy is gone. I eat dinner alone. Angela's on the graveyard shift at the detox clinic. On Turner Classic Movies, I watch A Night to Remember. Gentlemen, we're in a precarious situation. I go to the attic to write. I look out the back window one last time. The dome light in the sedan is off now. A thin line of light seeps through the crack at the front, at the bottom of the front door. So, uh, this, that was my introduction to northern New Mexico. And thank you. That was my introduction to northern New Mexico and uh, occurs pretty early on in the book and um, is, is kind of the beginning of a meditation on the idea of neighbors uh, and just what you're supposed to do in a situation when your neighbors with a family that's in a situation like this. Complicating it, of course, is the fact that I'm a recovering addict and Angela's studying addiction and her family has a whole uh, history of addiction. 
Uh, and we're on this landscape that, uh, to use there's some academics in the audience tonight, uh, a Freudian term, uh, oh, an overdetermined landscape, right? All the ways that it's been imagined for us, the Western, capital W. And these lives, these complicated, painful, jagged lives, they're completely invisible on this landscape. The tourist imaginaries are like a wallpaper over it. And make, and make these uh, narratives uh, largely invisible. Um, you, you drive past, how many people have been in northern New Mexico? If you've ever driven between Santa Fe and Taos, you've gone right through Velarde, but you have not seen it. The, the road is just slightly above. Uh, what you can see, you'll see a couple apple orchards, and you might see the, the tin roof, the, the, the peaked tin roof of one of the old adobes. But the, the, uh, the landscape largely hides um, the, the human geography. And uh, the tourist imaginaries and, and the serious money in northern New Mexico, Los Alamos, Taos, and Santa Fe, are three of the richest zip codes, have three of the richest, uh, some of the richest zip codes in the entire country. And they're right next door to uh, some of the poorest uh, places, uh, rural or urban, in the country. And the Española Valley is where there's a triangle where all these, um, uh, all these uh, radically different communities um, intersect. Uh, and I'll leave you with just one last image and, and then uh, uh, see if you have any questions. Uh, I just went to New Mexico and, and presented the book there. And uh, a wonderful uh, academic uh, kind of think tank uh, place called uh, the School of, um, uh, oh my god, I'm blanking on the name, American Research? American Research? Yes. SAR uh, uh, had, uh, had Angela and I present our books there. And you know, this is in Santa Fe, right? And uh, we were feted at uh, a wonderful uh, uh, house up on the hills overlooking the Española Valley, where we could kind of like say, hey, that's where Rose and Jose's house is. That's where we used to live. And um, the owner of the house that we were staying in had been called by the Santa Fe Reporter. The Santa Fe Reporter, a uh, local alternative newspaper, did an issue on kind of like the new money that had poured into uh, Santa Fe over the last generation. And it called the, the owner of this particular house, uh, described him as being richer than God. So we were in that house, and they put us up in a villa at this uh, really uh, amazingly uh, uh, exclusive uh, uh, resort. And when we arrived at the villa where we were staying, um, there were all these black SUVs and, and guys like in the bushes, you know, like secret service agents. And we're going, is the governor hanging out tonight? And, and, and we asked, you know, one of the, one of the, the security people, who's, who's, the, who's, who's there? He said, Johnny Depp is your neighbor. He was filming The Lone Ranger. Uh, I'm not sure, you know, I'm not sure what Johnny Jeb is, is going to do with the Lone Ranger myth. Uh, it'll be interesting, you know, to compare what my father heard in the 1940s to, to the, whatever new Western wrinkle Johnny Depp will give. So we go from being Johnny Depp's neighbor to coming back down into the valley and ultimately to my mother-in-law's house in the South Valley of Albuquerque. And my mother-in-law lives in a very, let's just say, modest situation. Uh, she lives in a trailer. Uh, 
on that same landscape, on that same iconic landscape, and is surrounded by immigrant, hard scrabble immigrant families, and is surrounded by many of the narratives as some of us have become familiar in recent pop Hollywood history uh, through productions like Breaking Bad. The southwestern deserts are a place of iconic, mythic beauty. And I love the desert, don't get me wrong. I love this place. I'm obsessed with it. I, 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 I still hike in it every chance I get. And I go for those vistas that I saw as a kid. But it's also a place where there is blood seeping into that sand. The sand is suffused with blood because of the drug war, because of the immigration wars, because of the, 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 the cleavage between the one and the 99, that, that, that distance that has been writ so large in, in the American West. And, um, and I argue in this book that that really is, uh, that the desert West is showing the United States itself in a mirror, uh, a very faithful mirror. And uh, so for each of these problems that I raise in the book, I'm searching for some way uh, to be a neighbor to the people that I'm living next door to. So thank you very much for coming out tonight. Do you have any questions? Any comments, questions, desert tales? Yes? So, that's one question to ask. I mean, there are two shots. You know, what, what is the shape of the new American dream? What does the new American dream look like? The new Amer what does the new American dream look like? Well, in, in desert America, I'm arguing that. Uh, Which is a good metaphor. D yes, indeed. Uh, I mean, what we, what we have here, I mean, it's apocalypse, right? Uh, right now, um, for uh, a tiny few, there is living, you know, like Johnny Depp on top of the hill, you know, with the millionaires. But for the vast uh, uh, majority, I would say, you know, extraordinarily difficult uh, economic circumstances. That said, the West of the last generation has also shown us um, great progressive politics, uh, 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 wonderful revisions of old Western uh, presentation, or representations, uh, everything from you know, the, no the novels of John Nichols to Westerns, great Western, recent Westerns, like Paul Thomas Anderson's There Will Be Blood, which I think tells the story of, uh, even though it's set in the, in the early part of the 20th century, you know, based on Upton Sinclair's novel, tells the story of what we're experiencing right now. I think uh, uh, incredibly accurately. Um, so I think the new Western is helping us deconstruct the old and, uh, and also pointing the way towards um, rescuing the optimism that we've lost in the Great Recession. I mean, Los Angeles, also, you know, we're not in the desert, although it feels like the desert today. You know, uh, f famously, uh, uh, Theodore Roosevelt referred to Los Angeles as being west of the west, right? We're on the coast. Um, but we are part, uh, ultimately, you know, we're the last stop of manifest destiny. And um, there has been an unbroken lineage of dreamers, idealists, visionaries who have looked at uh, manifest destiny history, the bloodiness of it, the injustice of it, 
and have tried to revise it and turn it on its head and 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 put in place solidarity and hospitality in the place of uh, you know the, the 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 ruthlessness of Western capitalism. I mean, because I, I think what you can argue is that America becomes most itself in the process of manifest destiny. It becomes its bloodiest, most violent, and then there's the reaction to that. There's the, the horrified gaze at what we've become and trying to turn that back. And just look at Los Angeles political history. The moment we're living right now, I'm not, I'm not predicting that Los Angeles will, will remain a progressive city forever. It's not going to be the end of history. But I do believe that we are, we've become a progressive city today because of about 100 years of organizing. You know, this didn't happen <laughs> via Ragosa's election and the Cicado's mural coming back and Flores Magón being at the Ford Theater. All these things that are going on right now didn't occur in a vacuum. There's been diligent, steady organizing occurring over many, many generations. And in spite of the Red Scare and people going underground and, you know, progressive Los Angeles has survived all that. And today, progressive LA, I mean, we can have arguments about this. Are we a liberal or progressive city? You know, I, we're probably you know, somewhere in between, but we're definitely left. I don't think anybody can seriously argue anymore that San Francisco is more left than LA. I mean, that was the old 20th century thing, right? All the lefties were up there and we were run by Sam Yorty and the wasps down here. So I think, I think there's a, a lot of cause for optimism in terms of, uh, there's Jan Brewer on the one hand, that's the old West, the governor of Arizona, SB 1070. And then there's this West. And there's the West of, you know, Nevada and Colorado and New Mexico, which, you know, I mean, they have different shades of ideological uh, 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 moorings. But uh, ultimately, I think, have uh, turned against that old West and opened up a new space for, uh, for another way to, to be, a more sustainable mode of living. Do you under underestimate? <laughs> uh, uh, I never, you know, I never saw him. <laughs> never got to party with him. Uh, you know, Johnny Depp uh, is, you know, I, I only mentioned that because it was just surreal. A sur just the, 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 the juxtaposition of, you know, being in such exclusive, uh, uh, such an exclusive environment, literally jumping from the 1 to the 99 in, in the, you know, in a snap of a finger. Um, just kind of encapsulated for me, kind of like the experience of extremes in the West today. Um, but I am interested. I am interested in seeing what Johnny Depp does with the Lone Ranger. He's he's playing Tonto. <laughs> so, really? Yeah. Which which angered some Native American groups, but you know. Who's the Lone Ranger? <laughs> you know, I don't know. If anybody has their app, IMDb app, you can look it up. Well, I, yeah. I want to, uh, well, I'm only like maybe 40% of the way through here, but I've already got a couple of things I wanted to ask you about. First of all, more of a, of a commentary. On page four, when I thought, I thought you had a really a, a beautiful observation. It says, landscape is about who is gazing upon that. The position of the observer creates a frame and necessarily edits the view. It says more about who is doing the gazing than what is being gazed upon. And then over here, 
on page 97 when you're attempting to make your cable documentary that has to do with what's going to come after an owl's bar, which you can perhaps uh, expand on in Joshua Tree. There's this one point where you're trying, and I emphasize trying, to direct Tammy in her musings as, as she's walking through. And it, uh, it really, I kind of want an amplification on this because you're talking about the process of creating for, for writers and the difficulties. And here you are trying to get Tammy to do certain things as she's wandering through the bar and she's doing something else. And uh, you, you muse at the time. It is the devil's bargain we enter when we frame a subject in book, film, painting, play, song. The frame will always exclude, distort, however we might yearn for the real. Was there a way to allow the subject to represent itself? Have you come to any tentative answers to your own um. I, I'm not. I'm not the first writer to ask ask themselves that that those questions, um, but thank you for raising them. I mean, uh, they're, they're the questions that I, I do my my literature classes. The, these are the questions. You know, the ethics of representation, um, the devil's bargain of of of, of representing uh, people. Um, it comes up in all kinds of ways. Just recently, I was asked by somebody uh, whether I ask my fam whether I give my family. Whether I show my family what I write and allow them to object and 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 compose with me, and the answer is, of course, no. I, I do not show. I do not. I do not. I do not ask them for approval. I, do, I don't give them veto power, but I do care very much what they think, and I and I and I use that example because ultimately, okay. I'm, if I if I write something mentioning my mother, write something mentioning my father, um, I want it first and foremost, to be out of love and respect, right? I mean, this is my family, this is my blood, right? Um, and, and because I know that their feelings could be hurt, because I, or conversely, that, that I might do them proud, right? Well, these are my intimates, this is, this is blood. There is an argument to be made that uh, if a true ethics of representation, there would be no line between intimate family and anybody else. And, or, or if there is a line, where would, it, where would you draw it? Family, neighbor, city, you know, uh, what, where, does the, where does the real other begin, in other words, you know? And, uh, and so I, I think th there's, no, there's no perfect system of representation. Um, and, and bottom line, because it's impossible to represent the subject fully. You're always leaving something out, as I, as I was saying there. And that does haunt me as a writer. Did I leave out the one detail? Did I, did I, could I have said one more, could I have written one more sentence that would have made a particular subject come to life more for the reader, right? Um, so within this imperfect system of representation, filled with all these you know, pitfalls, how do we get the best out of it? What I was taught um, is that you talk about the problem, that you raise the problem itself, and make people aware that they're reading a book 
That's an imperfect representation. And to critique representation itself, even as you're trying to represent, which is kind of like a classic postmodern kind of critical thing, right? Um, and I just I was at Mills College just a couple days ago, and I had a bunch of grad students asking me questions just like this, and the conversation just really you know started popping, um, and we didn't resolve anything, but we were aware of the problem, and I think. Awareness of the problem? I mean, I think the problem is when you're not aware of the problem. So, I should probably leave it at that. <laughs> so, but thanks for raising it. Steve. I'm still struggling with your suggestion that Jan Brewer is representative of the Old West. Ah. Now, here's, here's why. It's a very phrase she represents a very new West. And, and we've got SB 1070 and everything from you know, search, you know, stop and search, to you know, no free speech rights, to Chicano studies is illegal because it's subversive by definition. We've got laws that are passing right. supported at that level. Um, what about your desert travels is telling you that that arc is moving away from a general world and not towards one where the backlash may be sustained that it is becoming a LA. LA tells us that story. Thank you so much for asking the question. Uh, LA tells us that story. Um, Los Angeles and California gave the world Prop 187 a generation ago. And where, where are we now? The demographics, even of Arizona, uh, I've heard some political scientists say eight years, 10, 12, at the outside, the state will flip. I mean, actually, I, I, read, I read a New York Times story not that long ago about uh, the Obama, Obama administration saying that Arizona was actually in play. Because it's, it was only a five-point spread. It ain't Kansas. You know? It's not Idaho. Um, Arizona is, is a relatively diverse state, which my parents can attest to, having lived in Arizona for many years. Um, the nativist it's a nativist reaction for short-term political gain, and I would argue for long-term political pain, just like the California Republican Party. Every, you know, I, I so that's, that's where I'm using the, the old Western motif. They're tapping into the age-old nativist trick, which, it works, you know, but it's old, and it's not sustainable politics, right? Because it only works in a situation where demographic change is, going, is taking place. And that means that if the trend continues, if, if the change continues, that part of the population that responds to the nativist reaction is actually diminishing. And so long-term, uh, Raul Grijalva, is the, is the, he's a, a progressive congressman from uh, southern Arizona, represents Tucson and South. Chair of the Progressive Caucus. Chair, thank you, Bill. Uh, absolutely, yes, exactly. Chair of the Progressive Caucus, and he's the New West. And um, yeah, so call me, you know, um, romantically optimistic, but I, I think rather than this being the rather than Jan Bureau being the future, I really think she's just you know uh, 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 a little bit of the ugly past rearing its head momentarily. But long term, long term, the West is showing the country 
uh, about its diversity, about its, uh, uh, and, and ultimately, uh, you know, like I said earlier, the West gave ultimately the, it handed the election to Obama. You know, so I think, I think it is. That's the new Western future is um, is definitely blue and not red. You know. Oh, I just wanted when you mentioned uh, Northern New Mexico, um, and you did mention John Nichols. I was wondering what writers you uh, uh, kind of referenced or, or you know, uh, sort of informed your your, uh, uh, your I don't know what you want to call it, study of present-day American West, either literary or nonfiction. Sure. Uh, John and John Nichols, <laughs> for sure. You know. Um, it, it's it's a great book, you know, the Mlagrubian for War. I, I I think it really stands up. You know, it, it, we we lived on that landscape, Angela and I, for several years, and um, it it, re it really looked. It, the book looks like the place, and vice versa. Um, several local writers who aren't as well known as John Nichols. Uh, uh, there's a whole cohort of Hispano writers. They call themselves Hispanos in Northern New Mexico. Esteban Arellano, um, Levi Romero. Um, uh, uh, and in, in the larger Western, you know, genre, Cormac McCarthy, I, I had this, uh, you know, I was, he, he of course does not know this because I've never been anywhere near him, but um, I, I just had this long running argument with Cormac McCarthy, you know, and when I set out to write the book, I, ha I think I had as many models that I was, I was writing against as I was trying to emulate, maybe more who I was writing against. I wanted to write against the Old West. And I really felt that McCarthy, even though some, pe some people championed him as kind of a new Western figure, I felt that there was still a lot of Old Western stuff about him, you know? Plus, I just thought his prose was overwrought and, you know, um, and uh, I was just jealous. I was just jealous. He sells a lot more books than I do. Let's just be honest. Um, so I was, I was gonna write against Cormac McCarthy, but then as I was rereading the Border Trilogy, Something, and I noticed this the first time. The first time I'd read all the pretty horses, something that uh, uh, I think his politics—I can't tell what his politics ultimately are. You know, I think you could argue either way that he's either reactionary or, or you know, I don't think he's progressive. Um, but uh, on the page, stylistically, there's something that he does that's, which ideologically I think is progressive. His Spanish is not italicized. His Spanish is, is Roman, just like English. It's not, it's not, in other words, it's not, it's not set off. You know, it's not made to, to look you know, a different way on the page, and, which is a wonderful stylistic metaphor for integration in the borderlands and how Spanish and English really come together in the borderlands. And that's the way it's lived here. That's the way we live in, in this area. Uh, and there was, I, I know there was writers who did it before him, but he was the first one to have a big New York publisher you know, uh, and having the world paying attention to start integrating language in the borderlands like that. So ultimately, I, I, I came to g uh, give grudging respect to the old uh, curmudgeon. So many, many, uh, and Western films. I mentioned P.T. Anderson just a minute ago. I, he's on my brain because of uh, the buzz right now about The Master, how astonishing a film it's supposed to be. Um, but I, uh, I probably had more film things on my mind in terms of uh, models. And P.T. Anderson's There Will Be Blood, as I was writing this, I really started the heavy writing right around the time There Will Be Blood came out. And I just still think that's probably the greatest Western. A lot of people don't even think of it as a Western, but I do. Um, and because of the way landscape is used in it, 
because you know the, the boom and bust implied in, in the narrative of it, and I just think what P.T. Anderson did with that film is 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 one of the greatest Western pieces of of art of our generation. So yeah. My last question. Um, first, I, I definitely feel uncomfortable with Obama and Diego being the I didn't say they were progressives. I said that many progressives voted for them and helped them get elected. But <laughs> okay. Uh, I just started reading the Monkey Wrench Gang, which I, actually because I was reading that and I saw that you were speaking, it, it um, made me want to come to this. And what about that kind of portrayal of the West? And is that even a reality? That kind of I mean I know that that's what's uh, sparked the Earth First Movement and just the, the kind of the horror of the dams and the yeah. mining and um, that kind of encroachment on this idea of the West and, and is that critique, is that way of looking at things something that you came in contact with? Oh yeah. No, uh, yeah, Edward Abbey, Ed Abbey, um, uh, I mean before, probably Cormac McCarthy is probably the best known even though he's not from the West, and he's become kind of like the Western guy, you know, in many ways over the last generation. But before Cormac McCarthy, I mean, it was obviously Edward Abbey was the best known of the Western uh, writers. And, um, and I, I read him early on and loved and hated him. I mean, you know, he's kind of, he's crazy guy, right? I mean, uh, uh, on the one hand, you know, it, it inspires, you know, Earth First and all these wonderful uh, radical movements that, that, that clearly opened up a, dis a political dis uh, a space for political discourse on, on environmentalism. On the other hand, he, 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 uh, he wrote screeds against Mexicans and, you know, his border politics were really weird and uh, so he's a, he's, a, he's a very complicated figure. Um, but what he represents in terms of environmental history and representations of the West as a place damned and just you know uh, unreclaimed mining and the, the ecological disaster that the, the, the West is. I mean, if you fly over the West today, fly over New Mexico and the fields of natural gas exploitation and new oil production and new uranium mining claims, uh, you know, uranium mining was beat back in the 70s by coalitions of Native Americans and uh, white progressives and uh, there's a whole his environmental history there that's, that's, that's largely untold except regionally. Um, the West has been, been opened up just in the last several years to uh, large-scale exploitation once again and uh, fracking happening in New Mexico right now, for example. Uh, so, um, our, and a huge debate over uh, solar and wind, wind energy right here in California. On the one hand, you know, a lot of people would think, oh, solar and wind, sustainable, clean, right? Uh, well, there's a lot of people in the, in the Mojave Desert who uh, think that um, uh, you know those massive windmills uh, and solar arrays are are not what's needed on that on that particular uh, in that particular biome? So uh, yes, uh, to answer your question, uh, uh, I mean um, the West is is a place, and once again, just you know add another layer right uh, on, onto the West. The way we live, the West today, tells us. Uh, how, how we're doing uh, ec economically, culturally, politically, and environmentally. And, um, uh, and there, the, the one cause for optimism in terms of env uh, recent environmental history um, 
begins with kind of like a, a tragic story. The Secure Fence Act of 2006 mandated 800 miles of new fencing along the border, which in every way, you know, is an aesthetic disaster, uh, it's an environmental disaster, uh, uh, all kinds of, 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 of impacts on, on the land and, and species. Um, on that particular issue, groups that had, uh, had had relatively little contact with each other and, and had sometimes had had very negative contact with each other, environmental justice organizations and, uh, and social justice advocates came together. In other words, the Sierra Club and Defenders of Wildlife came together with uh, immigrant rights coalition groups and signed letters together and pushed Washington and actually stopped the wall. Uh, there were several injunctions. Um, so that coalition happening in the West you know, social justice and environmental groups coming together, uh, that has to happen. And it's happening more and more, but I think here in the West is really where it first really started uh, occurring. And it's happened here in Los Angeles too, Friends of the Los Angeles River, and you know, so there's, there, I think there's plenty of, of cause for optimism in terms of uh, progressive, real progressive forces coming together. I, I take your note about Obama and, uh, uh, and the city and Villaraigosa uh, to heart. I didn't mean to imply that uh, this is progressive paradise. You're absolutely right about that. Yes. Hollywood. There you go. <laughs> progressive. <laughs> but progressive forces have pushed the city and and uh, and it's and yeah, so it's moving in the right direction. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, good. Thanks. What I'll do is I'll move all this stuff out of the way. We'll bring out a table for him to sign. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.